Well, we've come to the final chapter of Luke's gospel, and Luke has been building to this moment, the grand finale, the miracle of miracles. Remember, Luke's purpose for writing his gospel was so that you may have certainty concerning the things you have been taught. Luke wanted to ensure that there are no doubts regarding the events of Jesus' life. This last chapter of his gospel is the culmination of the life and work of Jesus. Our hope, the Christian faith, hinges on the events of this chapter. My heart is that we would really take these events in and they would transform our hearts and our worship, especially as we observe the Advent season. What a kindness of God that he ordained that we would be studying the truths of the resurrection as we prepare to celebrate the wonderful gift of Christmas. Just going to take a moment to pray before I unpack the scriptures. Heavenly Father, thank you for giving us the gift of your son. Thank you, Jesus, for being obedient to your father and being willing to die for us, for our sins, on our cross, so we might know freedom from the bondage of sin and have life, life in you. Would you please help me? It is an incredible privilege to teach about the resurrection and want to get it right and to glorify you. Help us to believe the truth of your word. Help us to have certainty about the resurrection. If there is any doubt in any of our hearts, give us faith and help us to believe. We need you. We need your spirit to be at work in us. Fill us with your spirit. Empty us of ourselves. Open our eyes to the truth. Give us hearts on fire for Jesus. Open our minds to understand your word. Please remove any veil that might be keeping us from believing these incredible events. Break any hard or stony ground that might keep our hearts from trusting your word. I pray, Father, that you would be glorified through the teaching of your word. Please use this time to increase our joy and fuel our worship. May we leave this place blessing your name. Amen. Last week, we witnessed the events of Jesus' death, his crucifixion, his death on the cross, and his burial. Jesus' body was laid in a tomb wrapped in a linen shroud. We're picking up the story early Sunday morning. It's dawn, the moment the women who traveled with Jesus from Galilee were waiting for. In obedience to God, they had rested on the Sabbath, and now they're returning to Jesus' tomb with spices and ointments to complete the burial preparations of his body. This was a demonstration of their love and devotion to him. Imagine how they must have been feeling. They have just lost their beloved friend, their Lord. Their expectations for deliverance have not been met. They're grieving. They're likely wondering how they're going to get to Jesus' body given the massive stone that was covering the entrance to the tomb. Yet despite all this, they go. They are committed to serving Jesus, their beloved. When they arrive at the tomb, they find the stone has been rolled away and the tomb is empty. Where is Jesus? They are bewildered by this turn of events. Two men in dazzling apparel stand before them. Luke 24, 23 tells us these men were angels. The women are afraid. They bow their faces to the ground out of respect. This response of fear, sorry, this response of fear to the appearance of angels, God's messengers, has been a repeated occurrence in the book of Luke. The angel said to the women, why do you seek the living among the dead? He is not here, but has risen. Remember how he told you while he was still in Galilee that the Son of Man must be delivered into the hands of sinful men and be crucified and on the third day rise? This is the first announcement of the resurrection. Christ is not to be found in a tomb among the dead because he is alive. 
He is to be found among the living. God used his messengers, angels, not men, to proclaim the good news of the resurrection. The angels reminded the women that Jesus had prophesied his return from the grave. The women were looking for Jesus in the wrong place, among the dead, in the tomb, because they had forgotten what he had taught them. They had forgotten the gospel. Jesus had spoken to his followers many times about his impending arrest, death, and resurrection. The women remembered Jesus' words. Jesus' words had been fulfilled. Death had no hold on Jesus. God raised him up, loosening the pangs of death, because it was not possible for him to be held by it. God the Father would not allow his son, his only one, to see corruption. Jesus was raised to life, conquering sin and death. Everything Jesus had told them was true, and he is alive. The women's lives had been changed, and they couldn't wait to share the good news with the apostles and the other disciples. It was Mary Magdalene, Joanna, Mary the mother of James, and the other women who were eyewitnesses to the empty tomb and the angel's proclamation. R.C. Sproul, in A Walk with God, says, It is significant, I think, that the first witnesses of the resurrection were the women who had stood by him when the men had fled out of fear. There is a sense in which their loyalty and devotion to Christ was uniquely honored by their being the first to get the message of the resurrection. I just want to take a second to remind you that Jesus values women. Jesus loves women. Women are a significant part of God's redemption story. We are full image bearers of God. We are equal in worth. We have purpose. We are seen and we are loved. In a time when a woman's word was not accepted in a court of law, God used these women to report Jesus' resurrection to his male disciples. God's ways are not man's ways. They are countercultural and often take us by surprise. That God would use women in this way is significant because man never would have. The gospel is subversive. We can trust the Bible to be true and reliable because it doesn't compromise in a way to be acceptable. A man's story would be presented in a way to be as believable as possible, while the Bible does not compromise to be accommodated by anyone's preconceived notions. Women being the first eyewitnesses of the resurrection makes this a reliable account. Sadly, when the women shared their testimony with the apostles and disciples, they did not believe them. They thought it was complete nonsense, a fiction. Our Bible translation says idle tale, which is a much softer way of translating from the Greek the word leros. This word is an offensive and vulgar tomb that would be similar to donkey dung. That was the disciples' reaction when they learned of the empty tomb and the angel's announcement of Jesus' resurrection. This was strong disbelief. Even though these women had traveled with Jesus throughout his ministry, supported him financially, were known and respected, they were not believed by the disciples. They should have trusted them. The disciples' skepticism should serve as an example to us as we witness to others. We need to have patience as we share the hope of the resurrection. The resurrection is a doctrine that is hard to believe, and the Spirit needs to work in hearts as the gospel is shared. While the disciples might not have believed the truth of the resurrection, we most certainly can. We can have certainty in Jesus' resurrection because we have historical, biblical, and verifiable evidence. These things testify to the truth of the resurrection. Jesus' life and death are recorded in history. The Bible prophesied the events that would occur beforehand so that they could be verified when those events were fulfilled. And it is verifiable as we have eyewitnesses to Jesus' resurrection. Thankfully, the story is not over for Jesus' disciples. 
Jesus does not leave his disciples in their state of unbelief. They don't miss out on the best news ever, and my hope is we won't either. Peter had a different response to his friend's testimony. He's ready to believe. He got up and he ran straight to the tomb. He didn't delay. He immediately went to see for himself. After denying Jesus, I would imagine Peter desperately wanted to see his friend again. When he got to the tomb, he poked his head in, and all he discovered were strips of linen. Peter returns home, wondering what happened. Yet he, he is yet to believe, but he knows something marvelous has taken place. Our narrative continues that Sunday with two disciples who are traveling to a village called Emmaus. Emmaus was about seven miles from Jerusalem. It was a roughly a 90-minute trip on foot. As they walk together, they are having an intense conversation about all the events that had transpired. As they are talking, Jesus approaches and starts walking alongside them. They have no idea it's Jesus because their eyes are kept from recognizing him. God kept them from seeing Jesus. They are blind to his true identity. As far as they are concerned, he is a stranger. Jesus asks them what they are talking about. They stop and look at him with eyes filled with sadness. Cleopas says to Jesus, Are you the only visitor to Jerusalem who does not know the things that have happened here, there in these days? He basically asked Jesus, Where have you been? Have you been living under a rock? Can you imagine questioning Jesus, the one who knows all, was at the center of the events and is really the only one who truly knows all that happened? How do you not know what's been happening around here? (laughs) Jesus simply responds, what things? Then the friends poured out their hearts and shared with Jesus everything that had been going on. They told him all about Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus cast out demons, performed healings and miracles. He had divine authority to forgive sins and taught the scriptures in the temple with that divine authority. Our chief priests and rulers did not like this, so they took Jesus, they handed him over to be sentenced and condemned him to death. They had him crucified. We thought Jesus was the one. We hoped he was our redeemer. We believed he would deliver Israel. But it's been three days since his crucifixion. And now his body is missing. Early this morning, something curious has happened. The women in our group went to Jesus' tomb and discovered his body is gone. They say they saw angels. And the angels told them Jesus is alive. Some of the others, they went to check out the women's story. And what they said was true. His tomb is empty. They didn't find Jesus. No one knows where his body is. These disciples are sad and confused. They thought Jesus was their redeemer. They did not expect him to die. Their expectations were unmet, and they don't know what to think or believe. They're feeling hopeless and lost. Jesus responds to them with a rebuke. O foolish ones and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? Jesus rebukes their foolishness. This is not a reference to them downing the testimony of the women, nor is it referring to their intelligence or their reasoning. This is a moral judgment. This is a judgment of their hearts that were cold to the truth of God. He is rebuking them for not believing all that the prophets had foretold. Throughout the Old Testament, we learn about the terribleness of sin and the chasm in relationship between humanity and our holy God. We also see God's deep love and his faithfulness towards his people. A blood offering must be given to atone for sin, which meant that the cross would be necessary. God provided the perfect lamb as a sacrifice for all of humanity's sin. The scriptures repeatedly highlight that the Messiah will suffer and then have glory. 
Calvary was inevitable. This was God's divine plan to restore humanity to himself. The disciples did not understand what the Old Testament taught, which led them to wrong conclusions about the cross. Their inability to recognize Jesus was a reflection of the unbelief of what the scriptures revealed about him. They were physically unable to recognize Jesus because of their spiritual blindness. Jesus affirms that these events had to happen because they were ordained by God. God said they would happen, so they did. God is bound by his word. God keeps his word, and even when it involves things that seem impossible. Then Jesus teaches them, starting from Moses through all the prophets, how the scriptures are all about him. Could you imagine listening to that sermon? Christ is central to the scriptures from Genesis through Malachi. The redemption story is woven throughout all of scripture. To properly read the Bible is to see how it connects to Jesus' life, death, and resurrection. The whole Bible is about Jesus. We can believe the events of the resurrection with certainty because the Christian faith is a biblical faith. All that happened was a fulfillment of what God said he would do through his prophets century before the first Easter Sunday. The disciples' journey is coming to an end as they approach the village. Jesus seems to be continuing on his way. It's getting dark out. It was customary at the time that when darkness fell, travel would cease. I love this about Jesus. He does not force himself on them. He drew near to them, shared his word with them, and waits to be invited in. We are all on a walk with Jesus. Until he opens our eyes to the scriptures, we will remain blind to our journey with him. He is drawing near to each of us, but it's up to us to invite him in. The friends insist that Jesus stay with them. They were enjoying his company and wanted to extend their time with him. Jesus accepts their invitation to join them. They have fellowship around the table and share a meal. Jesus takes the bread, blesses it, breaks it, and gives it to them. It is at this moment that their eyes were opened and they recognize him. Did this intimate act remind them of when Jesus fed the 5,000? Or was it the Passover meal he shared with his apostles? We don't know, but it's when God chose to open their eyes to the truth. And just like that, Jesus is gone. He vanishes. Their friends turn to each other and say, Did our hearts not burn within us as we, he talked to us on the road? Will he open to us the scriptures? Jesus' presence made their hearts burn. An interpretation of scripture that put Jesus and his finished work front and center set their hearts on fire. It was their, the scriptures that changed their hearts to believe the resurrection. Jesus opened their heart eyes before opening their physical eyes. Once their hearts were open to the truth, he reveals himself to them. I love this quote from the blog, The Eyes Jesus Opened First by John Bloom on Desiring God's website. When God ordains things to happen contrary to our expectations, like Cleopas not expecting Jesus to die, those are times when we are tempted to doubt his word, to lose faith, and as a result, lose sight of him. But not being able to see him does not mean that he isn't there walking with us. We may not recognize him. Those are the times that we are not to neglect the word. Rather, those are the times to spend hours looking. That is where you'll begin to recover your sight. We see Christ through his word that is living and active. We walk by faith, not by sight. We must know and believe the word so that we don't lose sight of Jesus. 
Jesus is the word. The only way for us to see him is through the Bible. The Bible is the only way we will know him. This is why it's so important that we read the Bible, study the word, and meditate on scripture. It is his his word that opens our eyes to see. The friends immediately got up and returned to Jerusalem. They didn't care that it was dark or that they had just arrived or that it would take them at least 90 minutes to make their way back. They were eager to go share the good news that Jesus had been raised to life. Their Lord is alive. They found the 11 apostles together with the other followers discussing that the Lord has risen indeed. It was true. Jesus had conquered the grave. While they were away, he had appeared to Simon Peter. Then the friends shared what had happened on their journey to Emmaus, their encounter with Jesus, how he revealed himself to them when he broke bread. There have now been two confirmed resurrection sightings of Jesus. Jesus' physical appearances have convinced them of his resurrection. They understood that the risen Lord had poured out his life for them. Their hope is restored. As the disciples were excitedly discussing the appearances of Jesus, Jesus himself was suddenly standing in the room with them. Jesus speaks to them with a greeting of peace. Peace to you. Luke does not include a detail of the story that John does in his gospel in John 20, 26. The doors to the room where they gathered were locked. The disciples were hiding in fear from the Jewish leaders, and this is where Jesus meets them. It would have been startling for him to suddenly be with them in this locked room. The disciples think they are seeing a ghost, and they are afraid. Remember, these were Jesus' followers, his closest friends who had abandoned him three days earlier during his time of need. They had fled from the scene of trouble, forsaking him, and one of them had even denied him three times. Yet Jesus, ever the kind, compassionate, and loving master, addresses the weak with words of peace, not with a rebuke. Words of peace are spoken to comfort them. Jesus acknowledges their fears, worries, and doubts. He is concerned for their troubled hearts. He goes to the effort to give them physical proof of his resurrection. He shows them his hands and his feet. He has them touch him. Jesus does everything he can to reassure his followers that he is truly alive. This is Jesus in the flesh. He is made of flesh and bone. He is not a spirit nor a ghost. This is not a vision. This is the Lord Jesus himself. The resurrection is a literal, physical, bodily resurrection. It is not merely a spiritual resurrection. The disciples disbelieved for joy. They found this miracle to be unbelievable, extraordinary, too good to be true. This was almost too much for their brains to compute. They are amazed. They marvel that their friend Jesus is alive. Then Jesus, further proving his physical return, asked them for something to eat. And I find this kind of funny. The scene is filled with drama and heightened emotions, and at the end of it, Jesus is looking for food. I can say as a mom of teen boys, it doesn't matter what's going on, my boys are always looking to be fed. So fair enough. Jesus must have been hungry. He would have worked up an appetite with all of his appearances, and a physical body needs to be fed. Disembodied spirits do not eat, and they cannot be touched. The disciples had touched Jesus, and they sat with him as he ate his piece of broiled fish, Jesus is alive, and for a second time, he reveals himself around a table in fellowship over a meal. Then, just as he did with the two on the road to Emmaus, 
Jesus explains the events that have unfolded. He reminds the disciples that what he told them would happen has happened, that it was God's plan all along, all along, that the Christ, the Messiah, would be crucified and raised to life, that he would know suffering and then enter glory. He brings their attention to the scriptures, the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms. He explains that they are all written about him. Jesus is the Christ. He is the Messiah. Jesus refers to all three parts of the Hebrew Bible to emphasize that not par one part of the scripture is not about him. It is all about Jesus. The scriptures must be fulfilled and they are in Christ Jesus. The Lord Jesus has accomplished God's divine plan. Jesus opens the disciples' minds to understand the scriptures, and as a result, they believe. They have witnessed the fulfillment of scriptures in Jesus' life, death, and resurrection. Through this Bible study, Jesus has given them biblical evidence of his resurrection. Jesus continues to emphasize the importance of renewing our minds in the truth of scripture. To know Christ is to know the word. As Jesus teaches the disciples, he is preparing them for their mission. They will be tasked with preaching repentance and the forgiveness of sin to all the nation. Their mission will start right where they are in Jerusalem. They have witnessed the events surrounding Jesus. They have watched his crucifixion, and now they have seen his resurrected body. They are called to share what they know has taken place according to the scriptures. They are not to remain hidden, locked away in fear, but to go out into the world and proclaim the good news of the gospel. Their purpose is to share that Jesus suffered, died, and on the third day rose to life, conquering sin and death. They are to proclaim that forgiveness with God is available to all the nations that all who repent of sin, turning from idolatry, self-reliance, and rebellion towards the one true God will, through Jesus, receive forgiveness. Jesus has made this forgiveness possible by shedding his blood on the cross, atoning for our sin. Jesus, the perfect lamb, paid for all our sin once and for all. Throughout the book of Luke, we have come to know Jesus as the Messiah, the Savior of the world. Jesus has ushered in a new covenant. Our sins are forgiven. We are covered by his blood. The law is now written on our hearts. We have been given new hearts that are moldable to become more like Christ. If you have yet to receive his forgiveness and the beautiful gift of salvation, I pray that you would continue to seek Jesus, that you would turn to him and trust him. He loves you. He's trustworthy. He's for you. He lives. He's waiting with open arms to forgive you to give you new life and reconcile you to your heavenly father. Jesus knows he will no longer be with his disciples when he sends them out to accomplish this purpose. So he promises to equip them for the task. Jesus will send them the spirit from his father. They are to wait in Jerusalem until they receive this gift. They are to fulfill their purpose and the power of the promise of God, who is the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit will be their helper. Just like the disciples, we are called to share the good news of Christ, especially this time of year when our neighbors are making preparations for Christmas. If this is daunting to you, I understand. Our commission from God is not a burden, but an honor. And I want to encourage you that we are not expected to do this on our own. We are to rely on the Holy Spirit. He is the source of power for evangelism. It will not be us, but God working by his spirit through us that we can accomplish the task. It's not about us. It's all about him. It's not our message. It's his. 
The scriptures fuel our faith to believe and equip us to share the incredible gift of forgiveness we have received and the blessings of Christ's presence in our lives. This can embolden us to share our story, our testimony of Jesus, and how we fit in his redemption story. Pray by the Spirit for opportunities, wisdom, and boldness to share your faith with those around you. We can share our faith without fear because we rest in God's love and acceptance of us. Jesus remains with the disciples for 40 days. In his final moments with them, Jesus leads them back to Bethany, the Mount of Olives, a place where they had spent much time together. Jesus' final interaction with his beloved friends is one of blessing. In the midst of blessing them, Jesus is taken up to heaven. The, the disciples respond to this incredible event in worship. They return to Jerusalem with hearts filled with joy. Our story ends with the, with the disciples praising God continually. The disciples' joyful worship might be an unexpected response. We might expect that the loss of their dear friend would leave them filled with sorrow. So why are they filled with joy and not sadness? The disciples knew two things that allowed them to have joy at Jesus' departing. First, they were going to see him again. This is not the end. Jesus is going to return. This is not a final goodbye. They'll be reunited with Jesus. Second, the disciples recognize that the separation is best for them and is best for Jesus. The benefits of the separation are so great that their grief is turned to joy. Jesus' leaving is a blessing in itself. For Jesus, it means that he is reunited with his Father. Jesus loved the Father and longed to be with him. His disciples loved him, so they would have had joy knowing that Jesus was returning home. Jesus has taken up his seat at the right hand of God. Jesus' ascension means he is going to his coronation, where he is elevated to the throne of the universe, where he rules as king of kings. He is now the king of the universe who holds all authority, Lord of all. The ascension is the culmination of the Old Testament prophecies. All of God's promises about Jesus have come true. I don't know about you, but I've often thought it'd be amazing to live during Jesus' earthly ministry, to spend time with him, to learn at his feet, to have witnessed his miracles firsthand, to have touched and felt him. But as I learned to walk by faith and continue to study God's word, I recognize that it's far better that Jesus is in heaven, seated at the right hand of God. It is not by seeing that we believe, but by faith. Like the disciples, those who are in Christ benefit from Jesus' ascension. The ascension means that the atonement for sin is accomplished. When Jesus sat down at the right hand of God, the final payment for our sin was made. Jesus has secured for us an eternal redemption. Even though Jesus had paid the penalty for our sin, we're unable to stand before God. We have access to the Father through Jesus. He is our mediator. He continues to live and makes intercession on our behalf. Jesus is praying our be on our behalf even now, like right in this moment. And how incredible is that? Jesus is our great high priest forever in heaven. Because of him, we will always have saving access to the Father through Christ. It's because Jesus is in heaven that we can confidently draw near to the throne of grace to receive mercy and find grace to help in our time of need. Jesus has entered the heavenly holy of holies, securing for those who wait for his return in eternal salvation. Jesus' ascension means that God has placed all things under his feet. God has made Jesus head over all things for the church. Jesus rules over all the enemies of the church, and Satan is under his feet. 
Nothing can separate Jesus from his bride, the church. No powers, no government, no authorities. We, the body, are being kept for him. We are being guarded for our salvation that will one day be revealed. On that day, we will share in his resurrection. Jesus' resurrection has secured for us an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading that is being kept in heaven for us. Because Jesus is no longer physically with us does not mean he has left us. Remember, he sent us the helper, the Holy Spirit, who dwells in our hearts. He lives in us. We have life in him. He will always be with us to the end of the age. Jesus is the source of our joy. The realities of his ascension should cause our heart to overflow with joy and cause us to worship and praise God. We have hope in Christ's return and a joyful future ahead. Luke wrote his gospel so that we would have certainty. May his gospel cause us to trust in Jesus' word and rejoice in all the blessings we have in Christ. So to close, I'd just like to share the words of a hymn. This is by Charles Wesley, Rejoice, the Lord is King. Rejoice, the Lord is King, your Lord and King adore. Rejoice, give thanks, and sing, and triumph evermore. Lift up your heart, lift up your voice. Rejoice again, I say rejoice. Jesus, the Savior, reigns, the God of truth and love. When he has purged our stains, he took his seat above. Lift up your heart, lift up your voice. Rejoice again, I say rejoice. His kingdom cannot fail. He rules over earth and heaven. The keys of death and hell are to our Jesus given. Lift up your heart, lift up your voice. Rejoice again, I say rejoice. Rejoice in glorious hope. Our Lord and judge shall come and take his servants up to their eternal home. Lift up your heart, lift up your voice. Rejoice, I say again, rejoice. I'm just going to pray now. <clears throat> Heavenly Father, I pray that each woman listening to this message would be transformed by your word and by the good news of the gospel. Thank you for all that you have accomplished in your son, Christ Jesus. Thank you that all your promises are yes in Jesus. Help us in our battle for joy. Help us to have eyes open and fixed on Jesus, your son and the perfecter of our faith. Help us by your spirit to become more like your son. By your power, help us to share the good news of Jesus. Help us to be women of worship, filled with joy, who continually bless your name. Amen.